John 6, 48 through 58. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. The Gospel of our Lord. As you know, we've been kind of working our way through the Gospel of John, and we've done kind of a rerun through this section, a high-level scan of chapter 6, and now two slightly deeper dives. And this is the second of those two deeper dives in chapter 6 before we move on to chapter 7. And this passage particularly um, is provocative, quite provocative in its language. And I just, just want to say up front that um, it, has, it has troubled me, <coughs> pardon me, over the years. Um, it's messed with my theology over the years, and it continues to kind of mess with my theology. But I have found it refreshing, no matter how troubling I find the passage. It's also interesting that two of the primary, um, and, and here's where we're going to start uh, dealing with language of the church, but two of the primary kind of symbolic acts or ceremonies of the church uh, are present in this service today. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, as in the Lord's Table, which we'll celebrate here in just a few minutes. And so how we think about these things shapes deeply and is shaped by primarily two aspects of our ecclesiology, understanding of the church and our understanding of salvation. So there's a deep interplay between our ecclesiology, how we think about the body of Christ, and how we think about God's, God's saving acts in the world uh, to his people as he creates a new society for the new heavens and new earth that he has promised us. And while there may be other symbolic acts of the church, these are typically considered the two primary, the two central ones, partially because Jesus so explicitly taught them, and then the church has further unpacked and explained them throughout the Pauline epistles. I also want to just say, by way of introduction, <coughs> that uh, I'm going to be cautious with my use of language. I recognize that 
as a congregation here, we are in a bit of a formative stage. And we have gathered around our confession of faith in Jesus Christ and our confession of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, There are a lot of theological issues that we have not delineated. We've not taken clear theological positions on. And more of that will be in process. But we're not there. And I don't want to stand here as kind of the, uh, the person who establishes that. So I'm going to work hard uh, not to simply tell you what I think, though you will hear some of what I think, but to talk about how the church has understood some of these symbolic acts throughout history, what some of the scope of understanding is, and how that might govern and shape our thinking today. I also want to say that right up front, one of the assumptions that I just have in place here is that John 6, and particularly this bread sermon, is the Apostle John's introducing the people of God to the Lord's Supper. As was introduced in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, through the Last Supper story. And if you'll notice when you're reading the four Gospels that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have a Last Supper account in which Jesus says, takes bread, breaks it, says, this is my body which is broken for you. This is the cup of the new covenant of my blood. Drink this. And as often as you do this, Paul then says, we announce and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, all tell that story. When we get to John's gospel and we get to the upper room and the last supper, all we hear is a brief reference to the supper. And then John tells the story of feet washing. Okay, And notably absent is this last supper narrative. So it's it's almost unanimous with scholars that this is John's take of Last Supper. So I'm not just making a quantum leap from that event to this more theological discourse, but it's commonly understood that that's what he's talking about. And that in the Gospel of John, chapter 6 specifically, he moves from a very spiritual understanding of what faith in Jesus does to our salvation— he moves toward a more concrete, symbolic act, ceremonial act, in the Lord's Supper. Now, I also want you to think just about this a bit historically. Most of the other, <coughs> pardon me, the two, three Gospels, Synoptic Gospels, are likely written uh, 20 to 40 years after the death of Jesus. And those stories are being read by the church uh, as it spreads across the Roman Empire. The Gospel of John comes along possibly as much as 40 or 50 years later, toward the very end of John's life. And so he's writing to a group of people who, as we see in early Christian records, are regularly practicing the Lord's Supper as part of the way they assemble. And so what John here in his, in his book, uh, I personally believe, is doing is providing a more theological understanding, and we might say philosophical-slash-theological understanding, of what this Lord's Supper is all about. Uh, Unlike maybe what the Apostle Paul does, he does it in a more imaginative, uh, but also taking from Jesus' words themselves, how Jesus taught, and in this case, specifically in the synagogue at Capernaum. John says these are the words he taught in Capernaum, and he's now contextualizing them in light of what would happen later in Jesus' life 
at the Last Supper. So it's interesting that um, John gets the privilege of doing this work after Paul and Peter have worked out their more systematic theologies. Okay, John now retells the story of Jesus, and no doubt the Holy Spirit brings to memory many of the words of Jesus, and they have a new kind of aha moment, a new aha context, given how the Holy Spirit has led the church in understanding the death and resurrection of Jesus and its implications for the people of God. So, again, those are conductors, somewhat assumptions, and yet I think rooted well in historic Christianity. So, I'd like to just reiterate. (coughs) The simplest way of understanding this passage is simply in reference to the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, communion, the Lord's table. Jesus has taught them to come to him in faith. And again, that's the entire message of the Gospel of John. He says very clearly in chapter 20, these things I have written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and that by believing, you might have life. Zoe, the eternal life of God, in your lives. You might have life in his name. And as is very typical with Jesus' teachings, he very rarely leaves teachings in a merely theoretical or spiritual sense. He always brings them down into tangible, actionable, behavioral sorts of ways. Jesus, in his very incarnation, and I was just deeply impressed with it again this past week, if we think about (coughs) the heavens and the created world being separated and fragmented because of the fall, the life of God no longer flowing through his creation in the same ways, because of the fall and sin. It's in the incarnation that those two worlds come back together in the person of Jesus Christ. The eternal Son of God, the King of the heavens, becomes man, takes on a body. And in that way, the metaphysical and the physical are brought together. And this is the beginning of the work of Jesus restoring all things bringing all things back into harmony with himself. And so it shouldn't surprise us that while he teaches the great things of God, he picks up earthy, tangible things and says, act in these sorts of ways to be fully participating in this renewal of all things. So in baptism, you know, and and again, the church has parted ways over this (coughs) a bit in that some have said, no, it's only the spiritual rebirth that matters. You don't need water to be baptized. Uh, our, our cousins, the Quakers, became that spiritualist movement, and they completely dismissed the need for any kind of physical actions. Jesus doesn't seem to think that way. And the majority of the church throughout history does not think that way. And it's important that we not think that way, though some of our early Anabaptist fringe people thought that way. The bulk, the mainstream did not, just as the bulk of reformers did not think that way. The Catholic Church has not thought that way. The Orthodox Church has not thought that way. So we need to be very careful about overly spiritualizing what in the incarnation of Jesus he is bringing together. So this water this morning of baptism for Chloe, the water actually matters. Uh, No, it's not about sand. Now, if you're in the desert and there's no water, you know, maybe some sand 
Jesus would be okay with that. But he wants us to engage in these kinds of physical, symbolic acts. Now, what takes place in those moments, of course, becomes another theological debate. However, when we come to this passage today, we must remember that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth in bodily form. And the incarnation becomes the beginning of God's bringing back together what was broken and fragmented. And he continues to do that by renewing a people through faith in the waters of baptism, by sustaining his people through a regular taking of the most common, ordinary things of our human existence, bread and wine. Now, can Jesus sustain you apart from the Lord's Supper? Absolutely. Just as he can save you apart from baptism, like the thief on the cross. His normative pathway is to participate and be introduced to his new body through baptism, through the waters of baptism, and to be sustained in their faith through the bread and wine at the table. That's the normative way. And his sustaining presence comes very, very close to us in those moments. As it will here today at this table. I want you to listen for the parallels here in Matthew's version. Again, Last Supper version. While they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread. And after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Those words, honestly, are just as startling as John's words here in this passage. The food which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. These are not easy words. And in our very scientific minds, it's very easy for us to just dismiss them as living entirely in another realm somewhere. The realm of the spiritual. And if there's one thing I want to just kind of hit on the head today is I think that's a mistake. That's a mistake. I want you to also listen to the first and very brief description <coughs> pardon me, of the life of the early church. Acts chapter 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit. This very simple, very profound passage, and it was referenced here in the baptism, often called the apostolic quadrilateral. Acts 2. These early followers of Jesus devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. Okay, and those become the kind of four quadrants of the life of faith together and community of faith. 
which if you want this unpacked further, just have a conversation with Wendell afterwards of how our worship service and historically how the worship of the church has centered around those four activities, those four components. Then I also want you to hear the words of the Apostle Paul. His re-articulation or <coughs> reiteration to the Corinthian church, who while practicing the Lord's Supper, uh, had gotten off on a tangent and were messing with its central message and purpose. And so this became a corrective word to them. When he said, for I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim or announce or preach the Lord's death until he comes. And just one piece I want to note there, um, and I think I first was introduced to this idea by uh, current theologian, scholar Miroslav Wolf, when asked why he left his Pentecostal tradition and joined a far more liturgical community. And he said this, in the Pentecostal tradition in which he grew up, his father was a professor and a pastor. He was a pastor uh, for a number of years. He said, everything hangs on the sermon. And if you have a bad sermon, you can have an entire worship experience and never hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the central message of the church. And I'm telling you, the world's full of bad sermons, in which if by criteria of bad sermons, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not proclaimed. Okay, and I'm of the conviction that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not proclaimed in a sermon. It's a bad sermon. It misses the main point. Okay? It's not the only point, but it's the central point. And Miroslav Wolf says, in a liturgical service where the Lord's Supper is present, even if the preacher bloopers, you're going to have a simple, clear proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ at the Lord's table. Okay, so I have some hope today that if I really mess this up, okay, we're going to have the most simple, clear proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ proclaimed at this table. Incidentally, I've heard that argument many times since. And I've heard it now and read it and seen it in church writings that go way back. So, for whatever that's worth. But what the early church or what the church's worship does presuppose is that word and table are present. Both. It's not an either or. And that word is what evokes faith. And we're called to respond to faith. And one of those responses of faith is to come to the table in trusting faith. Confessing our sins. Repenting of our sins. Regularly. Every Sunday. And coming to Jesus. And saying, Jesus, unless you feed me and give me nurture, I have no life in me. And so we come in repentance and faith every Sunday to this table. Now, Orthodox and the Roman churches have, at their best, they've kept this part of the corporate worship central and sacred. And particularly leading up to the Reformation, what they were neglecting was the careful exposition and preaching of the word of God, by which faith 
is born. So, surprise, surprise. Many of the Reformation churches, what did they do? Okay, and to this day, you go to an Orthodox or a Roman church, a Roman Catholic church, what you'll see is often the pulpit off to the side, and you'll see the altar or the table at the center. And that represented the theological paradigm. What happens in most churches that were birthed out of the Reformation? Where's the pulpit? Dead center. If the table is there, okay, sometimes it's there as a figure, but not served regularly. Sometimes it's also in the center. So you, you see these things playing out in various ways. But what happened over the course of much of the churches of the Reformation is they, <coughs> they actually began to abandon the significance of the Lord's table in their regular corporate worship. And I want you to note that the leading reformers in their writings are committed to the regular serving of the Lord's table to the people of God as a regular part of corporate worship. It's there in all the it's an assumption. It's not as explicit, but it's assumed, including guys like Zwingli and Calvin and Luther and the Anabaptist third wave as well. You're reading the earliest Anabaptist confessions of faith. In the footnotes regarding corporate worship, it says the community of faith should really gather three to five times a week. And every time they gather, they should break bread together. They should share the Lord's Supper together. Okay, And somehow, we, along with many of the churches of the Reformation, have wandered down a pathway to what we've reduced that to once a month, some once a quarter, some less than that, twice a year, once a year, once every two years. If there's trouble, once every five years. And then we wonder why there's trouble. Okay, and I think there's a correlation. There's a connection. We desperately, and I unapologetically use that word, we desperately need both. We need the clear teaching so that our ears hear and our hearts respond in faith. And then we need the physicality of the bread and the wine taken in trusting faith to elicit our faith, to center us on the mission of Jesus, and to equip us and sustain us to go back out into the world on mission. <coughs> A couple of things I would like to note here. Um, in this in this passage specifically, Jesus begins by juxtaposing the manna of Moses in the wilderness and himself. And as we know in the previous conversation, these, these Jews are deeply committed to Moses. And they see Moses, as he truly was, one of the greatest prophets of God. And they hold him up as a model of how God has worked in the world. And one of the great signs that Moses was this true man of God is the 40 years of manna in the wilderness. God fed them. God sustained them. They think Moses did it. Jesus corrects them and says, well, it was actually God. But his punchline, when it comes down to this more uh, Eucharistic portion of the passage, his punchline is, you think that was bread from heaven? All your fathers ate that for 40 years. Guess what happened to them? It died. Boom, died. (coughs) 
the bread, and then he, then he goes on. And this, this is provocative. Okay, the bread that I'm going to give you, you eat it, you don't die. There is no wonder that you get to the end of this passage. So many of these people are troubled. And they just kind of check out. I said, this is tough stuff. I'm out. I don't get it. Walking away. What's remarkable is that the disciples, they're struggling too. Okay, They don't get it. Now, it's obvious that after the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost, things start clicking. And it starts making sense for them. But right now, they still don't get it, but there's been a shift. They saw Jesus feed 5,000 by breaking the bread and blessing it. Jesus met them on the storm, on the seas that night, when they were absolutely terrified, and said, it is me, don't be afraid, it is I. Don't be afraid. He's declaring his divinity. Jesus, in seeing these people reject his teachings, there had to be an incredible sadness that settled in. And he looks at his disciples and he says, you're going to walk away too. And Peter, though his faith was to to falter many, many times, said these profound words. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And here again, Peter makes a confession that he does not yet fully understand. Just as I would say all of us have confessed our faith in Jesus and been publicly baptized, we made a confession we don't fully understand. We didn't fully understand. Let's be honest, we don't fully understand. But what we say is, Jesus, we're going to trust you. And if you say we go to baptism, we're going to go to baptism. If you say we come regularly to the table and somehow through that you're going to sustain us, we come to the table regularly in trusting, open-hearted faith toward Christ. And I think we've tended then to take this language and just diminish it to make it comfortable in our more scientific, materialistic sort of world. And I'm just suggesting that's not helpful. That's not helpful. He said... I am the living bread. It's me. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I abide in him. The bread that I am giving for the life of the world, Jesus said, is my flesh. And it's very strong language. I don't think we need to apologize for that. I think we should be slightly comforted. <clears throat> In one of my favorite historic books uh, by Robert Louis Wilkin, he wrote a book called The Christians as the Romans Saw Them. So he scoured early Roman documents during the time of the early church, and he documents all these kind of journalistic quotes describing Christians that are showing up all over the Roman Empire. And one of the things that they are charged with by Roman journalists and historians regularly is that they gather inside houses and practice cannibalism. Okay, And so you say, well, were they cannibals? Well, that's actually what the Jews were afraid of. 
Jesus sounds like he's wanting us to be cannibals, and that violates the law of God. Well, what that says to me is that they used the very clear, simple words of Jesus. And whether, no matter how they understood it, they used it and were true to it. And the unbelievers, the pagans listening on the outside said, guys are cannibals. Exactly what the first century Jews were saying. Well, you can want us to be cannibals. I think it just says to us, don't shy away from this language. Don't shy away from it. Then there's this other kind of quick passing illusion that takes place here. And it's not very explicit, but enough people pointed it out <coughs> that I took note of it. And that is to the tree of life. If you think about the fall in the Garden of Eden, there was one tree left that God said, don't eat or you, lest you live forever. Okay, here they are now, fallen from God, separated from the life of God. And there's the tree of life that if they eat of it, they live forever in their separated position from God. And God says to them very specifically, I'm going to move you out of the garden so that you don't live forever in your current situation. And now Jesus shows up and says, in my flesh, on the tree, is life for the nations. Eat and live. Eat and live. Incredible words of invitation and hope. And then Jesus as the true life giving food and drink. <coughs> Again, I've discussed some of this earlier ahead of my notes. But I would remind us that the church has been serving this meal for 2,000 years. And John here is unpacking and explaining the centrality of this table to the ongoing work of Jesus among his people. As baptism <coughs> is Jesus' invitation to come once for all through faith and his physical initiation into the church, the Lord's Supper, Communion, Eucharist is Jesus' challenge to come continually to this ceremony within the church. Both pre presuppose the proclamation of the word and a response of faith. Both physicalize that spiritual trust in the waters of baptism and in the bread and the wine. And we desperately need, we desperately need this as the people of God. The table is not a second way of salvation, but it's simply Jesus' one way of salvation, scaled down, physicalized, individualized, simplified, and concretized. In our hands, in our mouths. Jesus knew we needed physical things. I think, and this is a personal opinion, that the renewal of communion, the Lord's table, may be one important way for the church to begin to realize the much-needed renewal that it's longing for. And some concluding remarks. And here's where I venture into the theological minefields. 
very briefly, very cautiously, and hopefully quickly. We use multiple terms to talk about what happens here at the table. The three most common ones are communion, Eucharist, and the Lord's Supper. We'll start with Eucharist. Where does that, where does that come from? That's one not commonly used in the Anabaptist world in the recent years. However, it was commonly used in their early writings. It was the kind of normative term that was used when they wrote about the Lord's table, just as it was for most of their, <coughs> most of their contemporaries. <clears throat> Where does the term come from? Eucharistio is simply the term that Jesus, that the Gospels and the, epo- the epistles use uh, when they say, and Jesus took the bread and gave thanks. And giving thanks is Eucharistio. So it's a breaking of bread in thanksgiving. So when we use the term Eucharist for the Lord's table, the point of emphasis is a response of gratitude and thanksgiving, a joyful celebration. And whenever Jesus gives thanks, including the Luke, uh, was it Luke 26 passage, where he's with the two disciples uh, after they sat down from their trip to Emmaus, and he broke the bread and gave thanks, Eucharistio. Upper room stories, Eucharistio. So that's, that's where the term comes from. It's also in, and it's interesting that as Anabaptists, we give some credence to the Didache, which is the oldest Christian document that describes church order, likely from the first century, actually. And in that document, it's called the Eucharist. So it's a very, very common language for the church throughout history. The Lord's Supper comes from Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, and he uses it in 1 Corinthians 11.20, and he uses it in a critique. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. But you've distorted the meal so badly that it's no longer the Lord's Supper. So it seems as though Lord's Supper was also a term that was used by the early church, and they would identify that in these writings. And then finally, the term communion, which is what I grew up hearing it as, and is still used <coughs> broadly uh, in the English-speaking Western world. And it really first shows up as a term in the King James Version of the Bible. So 1 Corinthians 11, King James says, uses the term communion, and it's, it's simply a translation from the Greek word koinonia, fellowship. So it is a place where the church fellowships. We fellowship with each other, and we share that fellowship with Christ. It's where we gather in fellowship with Christ. Most of the other English translations don't use the word communion. They use the term fellowship. So it could be called the fellowship meal. Fried chicken. Well, no, now it's no longer the Lord's Supper. Okay, The Lord's Supper is bread and wine. There's, this, there's something simple and central to its message as an activity for believers in the worship of the church. Okay, another, just another item to, to discuss briefly, um, and, and there's some theological, <coughs> pardon me, divide over this one. Is the Lord's Supper, is baptism a sacrament, or is it an ordinance? Both terms are used, and they tend to represent two differing theological perspectives. Um, in, again, most more recent years, among contemporary conservative Anabaptist churches, the term ordinance has been the preferred word, along with some strands of the Baptist church and Pentecostal churches. And in 
in the American conservative Anabaptist church, or Anabaptist church broadly, churches broadly, the term ordinance really gained prominence in the early 1900s. And it was an attempt to reiterate the centrality of salvation by faith apart from human activities. So I'm going to give you two very – and these are at the risk of being very simplistic, okay, which is not something I like, but I have a simple mind sometimes. So here, here's a go at describing, defining these two words. Ordinance typically is used in describing a view that this is man acting in response to previously received grace. So it's an act of obedience based on a grace that has come to us by faith. So baptism, for example, we believe a person is truly born again when they trust Christ. Baptism, then, the public, the water, is what you do because of that. A public declaration. Sacrament usually implies that in some way or other, God is present and active in the ceremony itself. In some way. And again, you unpack that theologically, there are many different ways. Okay, because of that, you can, you can say that there's a, there's a sense in which every, everybody believes that it is at least an ordinance. Even your most radical sacramentalists believe it's also an ordinance. It's a memorial action in memory of. But not all people who hold to the memorial view are also sacramental in their thinking. And <coughs> again, the term sacrament was used predominantly by early Anabaptists. And one of my early Anabaptist theologians, probably I have some empathy for him because he was not formally trained, Pilgrim Marpeck, uh, to me gives one of the better descriptions flowing out of that movement in which he calls, <coughs> uh, let me see. he calls it an external ritual to show that Christ is savingly present. And it's also there to proclaim the gospel. And again, I simplify his writings. But he uses the term sacrament. He thinks this is a divine human place of interaction around the physical, material things. Not apart from faith, but in response to faith, as a part of faith. Okay, how do we then make sense out of what happens here at the table? And maybe this is the biggest minefield of all. But a very quick overview. Again, the ordinance perspective tends to see it as a memorial. And so if, I'd, I'd like for you to see this as a trajectory of thought. Okay, the simplest, um, most, careful here. The simplest interpretation is that we are remembering. And we use these tools to remember. And so think about a loved one who has passed. For example, when I go down to Augusta Chapel to preach, I have a grandma and a grandpa who are buried there. And I think every time I'm at their church Sunday morning, I'll walk out afterwards and go out to those tombstones. And it becomes a symbol that brings up memories. 
and I remember my grandma, and I think about what I heard about my grandpa who I never met. Is, and the memorial view is kind of that here at the Lord's table. We gather to remember Jesus died, gave his life for us, that he's present with us today, not at the table, but somewhere, and he's coming again. And so there are theologians who point to the memorial, strictly the memorial, and actually, they actually use the term, some of them. The memorial view is the non-presence view. Okay, Jesus is not present here in this meal. Now, I don't think all memorialists would own that perspective. And then, kind of on the other side, Kind of on the, all the way on the other side is the view commonly called transubstantiation that simply says through the consecration of the bread and wine, though the appearance and the matter of the bread and wine don't change, their substance does. And in substance, they become for us the actual body and actual blood of the Lord Jesus. And you can see in a sense how those represent two extreme positions. Okay, and then there is a gradient of views in between. And we don't have time to dive into them, but one of, the, one of them is, and this one's kind of back just this side of transubstantiation, is one called transsignification. That says it's first and foremost a sign activity, but the bread and wine become the subject of a new establishment of meaning. And Jesus is actually seeks to be present with us, and we abide in him and he with us in that space. Uh, Luther proposed consubstantiation or a sacramental union where bread and wine as physical items are simultaneously present with the body and blood of Jesus. Again, I just want to reiterate, nobody denies the memorial view. So if you want to just play it really, really safe, hang out there. Okay? It's, some of this language still brings us trouble. Okay? Unless you spiritualize it, and I'm increasingly skittish of spiritualizing all sorts of things. But maybe that's just my current place on the journey. I personally think there's more going on. Far more going on. Which is why I have a slight preference for the term sacrament. It is a time and place and a method in which Christ wants to fellowship with his people in a very real way. A very real way. (coughs) I've not worked it out. And somehow, I'm suspicious, I'll never understand it on this side. But maybe someday. While, in some sense, I'm preaching to the choir here today in that those of us who come here regularly do participate in the Lord's Supper every Sunday. I think it's important for us to continue working out the theological foundations or implications for our regular coming to the Lord's table. What's more important is that we do it. We come. We come with thanksgiving. We come for the most ordinary of foods, bread, and the drink of celebration, wine. We come with joy, but we don't come from an unexamined place. Because it too is a table of judgment. 
And we must examine our hearts, which is why we go through confession every Sunday. And that's not just an act. We need to be thoughtfully coming before God with sorrow for our sins, owning them before him. Let's be cautious about, as some of the church has been wont to do, coming up with alternate ways of responding to Jesus at the end of the service, an altar call, coming to the railing, walking a sawdust trail. Jesus gave us exactly what we need, a way to respond to him in faith at the end of every worship service. And he marked it out as his table. And I would just reiterate I sincerely believe that a return of the Lord's table to our regular corporate life together may be a significant component of the renewal for which many of God's people long.